Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. There have been some fun statistics flying around from this podcast or for this podcast. And I wanted to thank the person who got in touch with me from Germany, a listener who talked about why this podcast is important there and important to her and why it speaks to her. I'm always so curious, as you know, to find out about what resonates for you uh, wherever you are and for what reasons. And if it's because of your life, because of your politics, because of your experiences, because of people who you care about who have had similar experiences or because of where you're from, whatever the reason, very happy that you are listening. And to our listeners actually in Malaysia, thank you very much. And to our listeners in Iceland, thank you very much. We are at the number seven spot in Iceland and we had been actually at the number one at one point. And that's very exciting. I'm very excited. So if you're listening in any other place in the world besides the U.S., and of course from the U.S. too, we want to hear from you, please let me know what you like about the show and what's been helpful and what's drawn you to it. Today on the show, we have Tracy Conan. Tracy has been investigating fraud for more than 25 years, but she didn't always want to be a forensic accountant. She went to Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin to get a criminology degree. A class on financial crime investigations reminded her how much she loved Encyclopedia Brown books as a kid. They were great. She continued her criminology degree but added accounting and economics courses so she could sit for the CPA exam. Today, Tracy is finding money in cases of corporate fraud, high net worth divorces, and other financial shenanigans. She's the founder of PinkTruth.com, which provides information sharing about the truth of multi-level marketing companies that prey upon women specifically. The focus is mostly on Mary Kay Cosmetics, but also covers other pyramid schemes and MLMs, multi-level marketing. Tracy is also the creator of the Divorce Money Guide, which has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the Business Journal, and many more major media outlets. Let's talk with and learn from Tracy today. Here she is. It is a pleasure to have Tracy Conan on the show with me today. I'm so looking forward to talking to you, getting to know you, hearing your story, finding out also what messages you want to be able to transmit to the people listening, because there's there are always some specific reasons that people want to be able to tell their story kind of as a cautionary tale and wanting to make sure that they can help keep people safe through talking about what happened to them. So I would love for you to first introduce yourself. I'm Tracy Conan. I'm a forensic accountant. So I investigate fraud. I like to tell people that I find money. And my passion in my work is in helping people sort out what has happened with their money, find money that may have been hidden from them or stolen from them, really help to protect themselves financially. 
find out what has happened to them, but also protect themselves going forward. Okay. So this is really uh, kind of, I feel like it's a direct hit, like going really into the subject. And that's why it's so exciting because a lot of people will talk about how their money is gone. Uh, A lot of people will also talk about being strong-armed into opening up lines of credit. I hear that a lot in cults. I hear that a lot with psychics and healers. And if they run out of cash, then, and even with this this group um, that I've been talking about that's been in the news, Twin Flames Universe, opening up lines of credit so that then they have the paper trail, they have the, the debt, and the people in charge don't. But also something really interesting that I've come across where people will say, oh, no, I, I got involved for free. No, it was absolutely for free, but they're still with an empty bank account. So how can it be that it was free? And there's so many ways that that's talked about within a cultic system that probably the most clever I found was using people's generous spirit where they were told it was free for them, but that in order to be a good member and a person who is showing integrity in the world, they can help make it possible for someone else to be involved. So they're paying for other people. (laughs) So they're not, they're really just paying into it like everyone else is, but the language used around it has made people feel like they didn't pay anything for themselves and they received something for free. So then they feel like they need to give back for this thing that was given to them for free. I'm sure you've seen all of this fancy footwork and linguistic kind of trickery. And so I'm wondering first, what got you interested in this? Financial abuse is so rampant. You're talking about it in terms of cults and you know abusive systems like multi-level marketing, like sometimes uh, certain religious sex, things like that but also on a personal level, I do a lot of work in divorces and I see the financial abuse there. I see financial infidelity, which is very closely related. So in marriages, when someone is being untruthful about the money or, you know, using money as a tool to control someone else or to deceive someone else, it is that work seeing so close, so upfront, the damages that happen to people and the control that people can exert simply with money is mind-boggling sometimes. And so that's why I'm so interested in helping, being part of the solution, you know, helping individuals recover, protect themselves, things like that. Mm, so good. Oh, I'm so glad you're doing this. So it seems like it would be a good idea to kind of divide out different organizations or different things where people get really tied in, like with being in a controlling or an abusive relationship. Also people who are trafficked, people who feel they need to stay in a bad situation because they don't have the funds they've given over. A lot of times also within controlling relationships, people have to give over their passwords and their ATM pin to the controller, but the controller gets to keep their own. So they have access to your funds and you don't have access to theirs. And then I think, you know, being able to kind of see how it plays out, I'm sure you've seen it all. So let's start with just relationships. What have you noticed that happens that's rampant and what can someone do in that situation if they're being manipulated in this way in a one-on-one situation? In that one-on-one situation, I see the financial abuse oftentimes starting very subtly. It starts out where we as a married couple, let's say, have an agreement about how money is going to be spent, what our budget looks like, 
What are purchases that we both agree are allowable? And probably what is a dollar amount where if a purchase is going to exceed that, we probably want to talk about it first. So couples often have those sort of thresholds and and it differs for everyone. Maybe it's $500 or $1,000, whatever is kind of considered a major purchase in your family. That's something that you talk about. And what I see in these financial abuse situations is that little by little, our agreements get eroded where one party has less and less freedom over their own spending, over their own access to money, over access to financial information. So the access, the ability to then be fully educated about what the situation is, what money is there. You know, I'm wondering also just in terms of these relationships when there are kids involved, I know that sometimes controllers will try to get access to all the money and then they'll sometimes try to gain the kids in a custodial arrangement so that then they can also have more funds given to them to be in charge of the kids, et cetera. They really, it's almost like the kids are then sort of pawns in a game they want to win. Um, It doesn't mean they're necessarily the more qualified parent, but what have you noticed when there are kids involved and how People can protect themselves because I see a lot of people homeless on the street with children because they didn't have money anymore to take care of their loved ones. It's so sad because these kids do become these pawns. Child support is such a hot issue when people are getting divorced. There is someone who's going to pay child support and doesn't want to. So they say, well, if I go for more custody of the kids, if I'm more involved in their lives, that'll decrease what I have to pay for child support. So that might be worthwhile rather than asking themselves what's in the best interest of the kids. Where would the best home be? Where should the kids spend the time? And, you know, there is a presumption these days that 50-50 parenting is best, that, that the parents are equally entitled to the children unless there is a showing that one parent is less fit in some way. But then when you start playing these games with time that we each have the kids, and it's simply because of a money issue, that becomes really sad to me. So you asked, how can people protect themselves? It's hard because my mind defaults to the situation of a stay-at-home parent. And let's talk about a stay-at-home mom because that is so much more common and it's so much easier to just say moms. Um, The stay-at-home mom doesn't have an income source of her own. She probably gave up a career, is probably now years behind in skills uh, compared to her peers in keeping up with technology and things like that. And so to say, well, go ahead and get a job now so you can support your children is a little easier said than done. She's probably going back to that job, making less than than she would have had she stayed in. She probably doesn't have retirement savings. There are all those kinds of risks. But the number one way to protect yourself, if you are the stay-at-home mom, is to start thinking about employment. Start getting yourself educated, get your skills back up, you know, start taking some continuing education courses to get reintroduced to your field. And then think about starting to work part-time, moving to full-time eventually. And I know what people are thinking, easier said than done. I've got kids to take care of. I can't just snap my fingers and find a job. Absolutely true. I'm not minimizing how difficult it might be. But if you're asking me for the first step that I would recommend taking, it is looking towards getting reemployed so that you will have a source of income of your own eventually. Okay. Very important. Just so you have that sense of potential freedom 
and the confidence that goes along with having that finances, but also some skills that potentially are marketable. And you're right, by and large, it is the moms who stay home. I mean, we're also talking about any gender. They are at a disadvantage. And it also can feel so cruel that they did give up what they could have had or what they could have been to support someone else and to support a household only to have that kind of used against them as insult to injury. I also know because of the work that I do, there are a lot of people who will try to get people to give up their money. And one of the ways they do it is by saying that the money is evil in some way, that it has negative energy or that it's making you ill. And so if you give it to me, I'll be able to purify it. And I'll take the evil on for you. Yeah. And it's going to help support me, this healer, who will then be able to save you. I've heard that time and time again, that if someone, let's say, has money, well, are you happy? Mm, No, not really. Well, that's because you have money. And that's the thing that's making you sick. So give it to me. And from the outside, you're thinking, oh, come on. (laughs) But when you're in it, I mean, people are very clever about finding ways to get you to part with it. Well, and they chip away little by little, don't they? They don't immediately come out and say, give me all your money the first time you meet them because they know you wouldn't be willing to do that. But if they can lay a foundation over a period of weeks where they are little by little uh, setting the stage for money is your problem, and you're not even realizing that they're convincing you of that as time goes on. And it's very much like I mentioned in these marriages where the control over the money shifts little by little, where your freedom to spend, your access to money and information is eroded little by little. And all of a sudden, one day you wake up and realize, I've got no money of my own. I don't have agency over myself because I can't even go to the grocery store and buy groceries without my spouse saying, what the heck did you spend so much money on? And I don't have choices. If I wanted to leave today, I would have no opportunity to do so because I can't pay for an apartment. I can't feed the kids I want to take with me. Mm, Okay, right. So going back to this idea of credit cards, where I see a lot of people being strong-armed to open lines of credit, I've also come across situations where people were made to cut up their credit cards, that the person controlling them wanted to convince them that they couldn't be trusted with money. And they usually have to show their receipts and justify all their purchases. And then if there's anything on there that doesn't feel quite right, the controller will either cut up their credit cards or have them do it, or even take their ATM card. That's happened to really kind of holding someone hostage in that way. I wonder in those situations, what can people do if they are really stuck where someone does have access? Someone will know if they are getting another credit card. How do they get funds so they can use for themselves? That's really hard because when I get asked for tips, like if someone is considering divorce and wants to prepare financially, one of the tips that I get is get yourself at least one credit card in your name only. You don't have to say anything about it that you have it right now. You'll disclose that one day in the divorce, but right now you'll just get that. Make sure it's in your name only. Get a bank account in your name only and salt some money away in that account. Don't lie about it in the divorce. Once you're there, you tell people you had it, but I teach people to create some independence with credit and with accounts of their own. So now you're saying, 
people have been convinced that they can't be trusted or they know that if they try to do something like this, someone's going to know. Gosh, that is a really tough situation. Going over the cases that I've dealt with where they really did have someone who accessed their information and accessed you know, their online banking. And the way they handled it is that they had to get involved with a different bank. One that's not even close to home where the person might not suspect that they're there. Or they have someone who set up an account with them who's trustworthy, who's outside the system, who maybe they can even share the account with, you know, be a co-signer on. But the other part is this, that there are a lot of people who are controllers who just give you the impression that they have eyes and ears on everything you're doing, but they don't actually. That there are a lot of people who think that the person who is manipulating them is going to know everything. They actually might not. They just want you to be too scared to do something on your behalf. So I'm glad we're going over that because some of it is just getting into your head. A little bit of mind control goes a long way, doesn't it? (laughs) It really does. I mean, I think also there's a psychological whole piece around the idea of feeling in debt or feeling indebted where people feel they have to give back. And within Scientology, for example, there are a lot of people who can't leave until they pay off what is called freeloader debt. And it can take years and years. And there is this idea that they will offer you, quote unquote, free services, but they'll keep a tab. And then you can't leave without being called an SP, a suppressive person, until you've paid off this freeloader debt. And yes, there are people who've had that extended 10 years or longer because of it. But my feeling is always that they're free to move about the cabin, basically. Like you don't have to pay that off. Well, it's interesting to me how if someone has the wherewithal to make the decision that they're going to leave, why do they still feel obligated to perform within this framework that says, oh, but by the way, before you do, pay us hundreds of thousands of dollars? Sometimes it's because this idea of being called an, an SP, a suppressive person, is so horrible. I mean, to us, that language doesn't mean anything. People become so petrified to be called that and to be seen that way, sometimes by their family that's going to be staying in. I was wondering if there were family considerations, like my family is staying and I don't want to bring shame to them or make it more difficult for them. Right. Yeah. And I don't want them to look down on me. So I have to do this the right way, even though the whole system is wrong. You know, people hold themselves up to a certain kind of integrity, but also worry about how they're going to be perceived. I'm wondering about debt, about if you notice that people feel that they're really in debt and they can't pay it off. What are choices for people financially who are really stuck in this way? If you're talking about people in marriages where there's a lot of debt, certainly the debts are split in a divorce, right? But One of the ways that I help as a forensic accountant is, can we look at those debts and can we trace some of them potentially to um, non-marital activities? That's the kind way of saying things like affairs, gambling, drugs. Those are the situations where there is a lot of times an opportunity to not be held responsible for some of the debt. Or maybe if there's debt in a marriage because of a business that was started, we might be able to segregate that and do something about that. We also look at scenarios like 
uh, one spouse getting a larger share of equity in the house to make up for improper spending, things like that. There are options, but it is difficult. You're absolutely right. Someone might be looking at this crushing debt load coming out of a marriage and what do they do? I know that the recommendation many times is go ahead and get the divorce, have the debts divided, and then file bankruptcy. Okay, right. So you're saying take the action steps, do the thing you need to do to get into a better situation, you know, even environmentally. Right. Okay, interesting. Interesting. So I'm curious to hear from you about some of the situations where I'm sure people come to you and they're like, can you figure this out? And it's like putting a puzzle together and then some. And so tell us about some of like the interesting cases, of course, I know without being able to share personal information about them that have really stayed with you because you really were able to help someone out in in a really pivotal way by finding sort of the missing pieces. I think the most interesting one that I've worked on is the one that I call the Instagram investigation. And this happened, uh, I think this case was about eight years ago. And so Instagram was, of course, a big thing then, not as big as it is now. And I worked for the wife and husband and wife had a lot of money. Um, He was a very, very successful attorney and they had a lot of assets to split. Once they separated, he moved away, got a young girlfriend, was spending a lot of money on the girlfriend. And we believed that the girlfriend had a credit card on his account. He wouldn't admit it. The credit card company wouldn't admit it. We didn't know why, but there was some spending that seemed not to be his and probably to be that of a girlfriend, but we couldn't prove it. With the, with the credit card company saying, nope, there's only a credit card in his name. How are we going to prove it? Well, my client, the wife, was always stalking the girlfriend on Instagram and would send me screenshots. That really wasn't relevant to me doing a financial investigation and trying to sort out the money. What I was ultimately trying to do was figure out what was her husband spending on this girlfriend. Now, there was nothing wrong with him having a girlfriend once they got separated. But the fact that he is taking what is currently marital money until they get divorced and spending it in a big way on his girlfriend, that was a problem. And one day it occurred to me, I was looking at this Instagram account. I was like, oh goodness, this woman loves to post pictures of herself when she goes shopping. So here she is with a new Fendi bag. Here she is with something from her men's. And she's always tagging the stores. The brands are easily identifiable, something from a Chanel store. And I went and looked at the credit card statements and realized that I could take every single one of her posts and match it up to a credit card item. And she would go for a fancy lunch on her shopping spree days, take a picture of herself at the restaurant, tag the restaurant. There it is on the credit card bill. So I went through all of this. And at the end of it all, $400,000 of shopping later, my Instagram investigation was complete. (laughs) 400,000. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's incredible. Incredible. Okay. So social media, being able to corroborate. I mean, that sounds really interesting. That's, you know, that really brings us up to being up to date on how when people post things, it comes back to bite them in so many ways, but I think people don't realize it. And I think people also sometimes, and you may have found this, that they act with abandon. 
because they've gotten away with things in the past. So they don't even think about keeping it private because they just assume life is going to continue this way. The fun thing about the social media stuff is you don't have to be a forensic accountant to do this. You know, I like to say that 95% or more of the people who are involved in divorce can't afford a forensic accountant like me to help them look at stuff, but you don't have to be a forensic accountant. If you had your spouse's credit card statements and you had their social media public social media posts. And you can see, I went on vacation this day and I took my affair partner and you can look at their credit card statement and there are charges at that vacation destination. You don't need me to help find that. You can find that on your own. Interesting. Good to know. Okay. So tell me about another case that's been interesting that kind of teaches some good lessons for the listeners. Well, I will tell you what, that a lot of what I do isn't that interesting to the general public. What I do is really going through hundreds or thousands of transactions and just seeing what people are spending their money on. Looking at the mortgage payments. Are there 12 mortgage payments for the year? Are there 26 paychecks deposited for the person who gets paid every two weeks? And that kind of stuff, again, is not necessarily rocket science. But of course, there's always the interesting twist. So I was working on a case in Chicago and the wife suspected that her husband had secret spending or was potentially siphoning money off, you know, and hiding it from her. Again, you know, some people plan for their divorces and they they do things, you know, sometimes years in advance, they start siphoning off money and things like that. And I was going through all of their finances and really not finding anything that looked out of the ordinary. It really seemed like his paychecks were accounted for and, and the things that they were spending money on seemed pretty routine until I came upon a check written out to a utility company in Arizona. Now, again, they lived in Chicago. They were well off. And so I asked my client, the wife, why would you write a checkout to an Arizona utility? And I expected her to say either they had a vacation home or maybe they were going to say, oh, we paid the bill for my in-laws one month or something of the sort. And she said, there's no reason why we would have a utility bill in Arizona. Shortcut it. We got a private investigator involved. And as it turns out, her husband had purchased a condo in Arizona. Once it was discovered, of course, he referred to it as a rental property. Rachel, I'm pretty sure you can guess that it wasn't a rental property. <laughs> yes. And you can probably guess who was living there. Mm -hmm. His girlfriend. Right. Yep. As it turned out, he had purchased this property. He had opened a bank account, a checking account for this to pay all this property's bills, but he opened it at the same bank that they had their joint checking account, husband and wife did. And this one particular month, he accidentally wrote the check for the utilities out of the wrong account and wrote it out of their joint account. And so that's how we discovered that property. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. You know, people do slip up. <laughs> uh, and so I do think it's it's good to know that they do. And I'm glad that you're there with your eagle eyes to find it. It's interesting within controlling relationships and within cultic groups that, for example, what would happen in that moment is if you had that aha moment and then suddenly the spouse knew that their spouse was having an affair and paying for all these things out of state, that would be turned around on the spouse, not the one who's having the affair. 
that that would be you being suspicious, you having a doubting heart, you not being appreciative of all the sacrifices this person has made for you. Why are you trying to take away their joy? I mean, you know, they get into your head so that you don't pursue this whole line, even though you now have proof because you've been made to feel shame about having a reaction or a negative reaction to this. Well, how often do you think when there are marital problems, when a divorce is coming, when we're in the process of divorce, when one spouse gets suspicious and says, how are you spending our money? Or are you having an affair? Or I see some signs that I think point to bad activities with the money. How often do you think they're told you're crazy, you're paranoid, you're nitpicking, you're looking for trouble? Right. Oh my goodness. Yes. I years ago was with someone who wound up having an affair with someone else that we were dating. And I, I, I say that I was called two P words. First, it was paranoid. Then it was pathetic. And that's when I knew I couldn't be with this person, of course. I mean, just from the affair alone, but I was paranoid for being suspicious. And then once I found out and everyone else could see they were together and <laughs> being sent photos of them out together, then I was, I was pathetic that I was so needy that I needed for someone to just be there with me and for me. And not having an affair. Yes. Very needy to not, not want your, your partner to have an affair on you. Sure. (laughs) I think that's so controlling. So I'm wondering also about a couple of other things. And of course, if there are other stories that come to mind, please, please, please share them because they're so interesting. You know, there's the whole world of the scam, the, the people who I know who get the email from, you know, I'm a prince in Africa and I lost my whatever and can you help me? Or the people who are, you know, there have been shows about people who are at like phone banks who are just scamming people saying that they're, they love them and that they're going to marry them and they just need, you know, money to have a ticket uh, sent over. I don't know what that whole realm is called, but I know it's a, it's a huge industry of people kind of working on people's loneliness, I think, and wanting to do good for others to get money out of them. So I'm wondering if that's something that you can talk about, about that whole scene of people really getting scammed in a big way. It's really hard for me to see people being taken advantage of like that. It's really hard for me not to say, how could you fall for it? Like there is so much information out there about these kinds of scams And yet it happens over and over again. I don't know how much more information we can put out about this concept of catfishing or scamming, you know, in in the love industry uh, for people to understand because it's heartbreaking for me, but I don't know how to help prevent that more. Right. I know that catfishing is very interesting. And if people don't know the term, definitely look it up and there have been shows about it. But I think that they go into finding people who, I mean, I mean, the, the most insidious part for me is that sometimes they will check uh, obituaries to see who has passed and who has left a spouse, a widow or a widower. And then they target that person who is now lonely, who wants to have someone who's interested in them and will call them each day. And then we'll slowly ask them for for money. I also see, you know, with multi-level marketing, because we deal with a lot of that in this world of people, you know, having to pay in in order to get a pay out. There's so many different things to talk about. So what would you like to start with? I want to go back to the catfishing and the romance scams, because 
I've seen this on show so many times where they will bring someone on, you know, it'll be adult children bringing on mom who has given hundreds of thousands of dollars to the guy who says, I'm on an oil rig for now and I need this money to get my visa updated so I can leave the area. I mean, I mean, these stories that just make no sense. And what's really interesting to me walk them through all of the facts and what private investigators have uncovered about who this might really be and how this story can't possibly be true. And these women will still sit there and say, but I love him and I just don't think he'd be lying to me. It is so mind-blowing to me. Is it because the heart is involved that we are willing to set aside logic and ignore the facts? Yeah. So ignoring the facts is something that a lot of people beat themselves up for after the fact. And oftentimes they have a bit of an inkling that something is off, but the promise of something that feels so good overrides the moments of doubt. And in retrospect, they can see it. I had a client years ago who said that she'd never been lucky in love She had been divorced a few times, had some kids, now adult kids. And they're the ones who actually called me and said, you have to meet with my mom. She's been giving everything over to this man who says that he's a war veteran because she had been from a military family. They always use the military, don't they? Always. And he's a war hero. And so then already she cared. And I said, what do you like about this man? I ended up meeting with her for a number of months. Well, she hadn't ever talked to him. I said, is there something about his voice? She said, I haven't heard his voice. Meanwhile, she thought they were getting married in a few months. And I said, what about the way he looks at you? And she said, I've never seen him. So I said, tell me about not seeing him. Well, when I call, he's in hiding because the enemy is after him because of, you know, he's really a war hero. And that means you have to take risks. And sometimes, you know, you can make the wrong people angry, but for a good cause. And so he's in a place that's sort of hidden and the Wi-Fi isn't good. And so, you know, he says that he wants to have a video chat with me and I get myself all ready and I get my hair done. And then he says that his camera isn't working and, you know, I just haven't seen him. But he sent me pictures of what he looks like, which is, of course, nothing like what he looks like. And as you hear these stories, you just go, oh, this is so sad. This is just so sad. And she's bright, college-educated woman, but just really in need of someone. And she believes it. She believes it in her heart. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with like in multi-level marketing, you will make millions. Because it's like the same thing of this promise, this carrot that's dangled. So I'm wondering, I'm sure a lot of people who deal with finance also have to deal with pyramid schemes and people getting caught up in things and in the hope of, you know, making millions. Well, as you may or may not know, I have been researching and writing about multi-level marketing for, gosh, more than 20 years. And so it's a hobby of mine, I guess, because I'm really interested in just educating people about the fraud that is multi-level marketing. Almost no one makes money, but they will hold up you know, this, these people at the top of the pyramid, this tiny fraction of people who make something, they will hold them up and say, if they can do it, you can too. And it's the, if it's the chance, I mean, goodness, your chances are better at a roulette table to make money than they are at multi-level marketing far greater at a roulette table, actually. (laughs) 
Wow. So if if you have a better chance gambling, (laughs) if you compare that to anything else, then of course, then you see what the numbers are really like. So with the research that you've done, what have you found out? And I'm I'm so glad that you've been writing about this and studying about this because it's huge. It's just huge. And it continues to be huge. And with new things that are being sold and new techniques. And now with social media and online presence of a lot of these companies, they're able to bring in a lot of people and a lot of money. So teach us about that, that whole world. Well, they're going to call it anything but multi-level marketing. They're, they're now calling it social selling, or they'll call it direct sales. They'll, they'll call it, you know, they, they don't ever want to cop to being multi-level marketing because they know what a stigma goes along with that. But Whatever it is that they're selling is nonsense anyway. It's not about the product. They will make you think it's about the product. It's not about the product. It's about the recruiting. You are buying into an opportunity to get other people to buy into an opportunity. It's not about selling products. Other than to selling products within your pyramid, of course, because if you, Rachel, if I'm going to recruit you to be in my multi-level marketing company, uh, you're going to have to buy products every month because if you don't keep buying products, you're not active and then you can't get commissions from your downline. So just keep buying those products. You'll eventually sell them. But what's so insidious about them is the love bombing. And that's where people get hooked is they are seeing this group of positive people who are welcoming them in, who are uplifting them, complimenting them, encouraging them. Probably at the same time they're saying, and let's use women because um, my focus is Mary Kay Cosmetics. And so it's women that we're talking to. These people who are love bombing you are probably telling you, and your husband isn't supportive. Your husband's probably going to criticize this. And he's probably going to ask a lot of questions and be really skeptical. And it's because he doesn't support you. Ooh, it's so insidious what they do. Because you know what? Your husband is being a reasonable business person and asking questions. How much are you going to make? How much is this going to cost us? What amount of time are you going to invest in it? When can we expect to start making money? Those are normal questions to ask. But when you're in the cult of Mary Kay, those questions mean he's not supportive. He doesn't trust you. I remember now there was a husband who came to me and he said, I'm not sexist. I'm really not. I really want my wife to be successful. And like that, it's an odd way to start a conversation. So I thought he's obviously been accused of it. And I said, what, what's going on? Well, my wife sells for Mary Kay and I needed to recite the husband's something. Oh, the husband's oh, oath. Okay. Yes. Right. Yes. I just remembered this. And I had to get up in front of a room of people and say that I'm not going to stand in my wife's way. And he said, I wasn't planning on it, <laughs> but now I am this bad guy who, if I say, you know, honey, we don't have any more room in the house for all of the things, or you're not able to spend time with me or with the kids ever because you're selling and you're not making enough, you're putting more money in than you're, you know, he said, I can't, I'm not allowed to talk about it. And so my hands are completely tied. There's something also about needing to recite something in front of people where then you feel that you're going to really be held to it because you don't want to say it unless you mean it, but it, those were not his words. Like I guess with other husbands too, they have to recite this in theory. I love the idea that women do need to be able to make uh, kind of their mark and be successful and not have men stand in their way, not have anyone stand in their way. So hypothetically, not a bad idea, but in practice, oh, it's destroy. It destroys so many relationships. Well, 
you know, the Mary Kay process often starts out, there's a little something that they've had going for years. And and the company will say, oh, this isn't anything official because it's not. They will say our independent consultants came up with this and there's nothing we can do about it. But they call it the husband unawareness plan. So Rachel, you're married. You want to spend $300 on cosmetics because you came to one of my parties tonight and you loved what you tried and you want to spend $300, but you know your husband would raise his eyebrows at it. Here's what we're going to do. Can you give me $100 of cash, $100 on a credit card, $100 of a post-dated check? We split it up like that. Your husband will never notice. The husband on awareness plan. And so little by little, they are normalizing deceiving your spouse. They teach, you know, opening up credit cards and not telling your spouse and using those credit cards to buy products upon products upon products because you're going for a goal. And every goal that you go for in Mary Kay has to do with how many people you've recruited and how much they spend on products. And if they're not willing to spend on the products, then you buy the products for them because you need that to get to that next level. Those free cars, not so free when you figure out everything you had to buy in products to be able to qualify for that car and then keep that car. I could spend hours foaming at the mouth about this. (laughs) Uh, Foam away because uh, I have so many questions. I'm wondering about the deception and if there are other ways that they really encourage people to deceive. I mean, they're being deceived too, but how are they being encouraged to deceive others? Well, the recruiting process is one huge deception. First of all, they would never tell you in the recruiting process, more than 99% of people who get involved will lose hundreds or thousands of dollars on this. Would you like to join? They're never going to say that, right? All they do is that they talk about how much money you could make. They say outright lies like, you make 50% on every product you sell. So if you sell a product for $10, you're making $5 profit on that. Absolutely not true. What the truth is, is you buy a product from Mary Kay Inc. at $5. Suggested retail is $10, but almost nobody sells that suggested retail. You've got to put it on sale. You've got to do buy one, get one, percents off, things like that. So right there, you're cutting into that profit that they talk about. But even more than that, they don't talk about all the costs that go along with having this business between supplies and gas and events and all the sorts of things that you need to support this business venture, you're lucky, lucky if you're making 10% on a sale. But like I said, nearly everyone will lose money. And how much do the people who are at the top make typically? If you looked at the very top person in Mary Kay, She's probably grossing about $500,000 a year in commissions from the company. But the level that she's at, which is national sales director, most of those national sales directors are probably making around $100,000 gross commissions a year, but then they have to pay all their business expenses. So it's really interesting that they talk about these executive level positions. I'm not saying $100,000 is something to sneeze at. But it is not what business owners like me consider executive level compensation. Right. No. And it's also gross and not net. Right. So all these business expenses chip away at that. Oh, but but she drives a free pink Cadillac. Again, she pays dearly for that Cadillac. It's not as free as it appears. Most definitely not. And so two other things that I think are interesting 
one about the hard sell because there are people who are relentless. And what is it about the system that makes people relentless, that makes them kind of obnoxious, unfortunately? Well, you're taught no doesn't really mean no. It just means I need more information. And what a damaging message to send out in this day and age that no doesn't really mean no. Sorry, no actually does mean no. You're taught all I'm doing is providing information. In Mary Kay, they call it layering. So if you if I tried to recruit you today and you said no, I would layer you, which means I would have periodic contacts with you via text, phone call. I might send you a little card in the mail. You know, sending little cards in the mail is still a big thing because it's now more unusual. Everyone, you know, we don't get as much mail anymore, at least not as much fun mail because so much is done electronically. But to get a little handwritten note in the mail, uh, sets that person apart for you. You know, that hard sell comes about, it, it, it's ingrained in this system of here's how you recruit someone. You have them to a party or they'll call it a skincare class. You present the opportunity there. Could you see yourself doing what I'm doing to make a little extra money? And if you express any interest whatsoever, now all of a sudden you're in the sequence where we're going to start layering you and start having excuses to have regular contact with you and each time try to provide you a little more information. But again, going back to what's so insidious is the lies that are woven in here. Lies like I'll say, Rachel, I am participating in a challenge and I just need to get your opinion. Would you be willing to watch this video and answer three quick questions for me so I could get credit in our contest for you having done this for me. Is there a contest? Um, There might be a dumb little contest, but really it's all a ruse just to make an excuse to have you watch the dang video. And then I'm going to ask you the three questions, which is going to suck you into a conversation with me. Wow. Okay. So years ago, I remember learning about this term from a well-known cult, because people who recruited for it were given something called permission to do heavenly deception. So if you could bring people to sort of this higher spiritual place and place closer to God, it was actually the Unification Church, the Moonies. But then it was okay to lie. Yeah, it's okay to lie. The ends justify the means. And so I wonder how that plays out here. Is that the same idea? The ends justify the means. They absolutely do it in Mary Kay. They have what they call the I story, how I got involved in Mary Kay or what my success story is, my I story. And they say, you know what? If you don't have an I story, that's all that interesting. You can feel free to borrow from someone else's I story. And it it is normalizing these little white lies over and over and over that can lead to the rampant deception. And I mean, the deception goes all the way up to When you are trying to finish that level, the first really big level to finish in Mary Kay, you do some small levels, but sales director is like, oh, we're the top 2% of the company. And to become a sales director, you need, they change it from time to time. Sometimes it's 26 and sometimes it's 30 people recruited under you. And you have a period of three or four months that you can do this. And what inevitably happens is someone gets to their last week And if you don't get to your number that you need to get to, you got to start over. And so they're desperate for numbers. And it is perfectly acceptable within the sales force for me to sign you up without your knowledge, find a way to get your social security number or make one up, quite frankly, 
and pay for you to be signed up and you don't even know it. This has been normalized, this lying to get these numbers because it's okay. It doesn't harm Rachel that I did it. It doesn't cost her any money. I've paid for it. She wouldn't mind, but let's not tell her. It's just to get you over this hump and then you're a sales director and things will get rolling and then you won't even have to worry about it. Nobody will ever know. Okay. It, that, it's an incredible thing. And that it happens to so many people um, that they're given permission to do something that really is unethical, immoral, maybe illegal. Not just permission, but encouraged. What upsets me is this positive public image that a company like Mary Kay has. Their slogan for years and years and years was empowering women. I don't think they use it anymore, but they would say empowering women. They are a wolf in sheep's clothing. They are taking advantage of women. They are promoting lying. They are creating a system in which lying is not only okay, it is encouraged and it is almost required. You almost can't move up to some of these levels without signing up people who don't know it, without recruiting someone and then convincing them to put $3,600 worth of products on a credit card because this is our unit goal. This is our group goal. And don't you want to be part of that? I mean, they are coercing people. And, and I get it. There are people out there who say, well, no one put a gun to their head. They didn't have to buy $3,600 worth of stuff if they didn't want to. You don't understand until you're in it how they strong arm you and how they try to convince you and guilt you into making these purchases. Mm. It's incredible. It's reminding me also about someone who saw me, um, who was involved in a large group awareness training called Life Spring. And she wanted out of it. And she said, you know what? And I'm going to get rid of all the papers, all the things. I don't want it in my house. Do you want it? And I said, actually, I do. I'm kind of curious. So one of the pieces of paper I remember that I found so interesting and it was so telling about why it feels like when people get involved in these groups, they might get over their fears and they might get something from it, but they can also really be in your face, you know, because it's a business, you're supposed to keep it well-oiled. And so, you know, you're supposed to recruit. And there was a sheet of paper that said recruitment opportunities, and it had everything listed um, at church, at synagogue, at wherever else, mosque. It had weddings, funerals, hospital bedside. I mean, all of these places, visiting someone in, in jail. I mean, there was so much that just felt so unconscionable that really at a funeral, you're supposed to be thinking about recruiting. You're supposed to be thinking about making a sale. Well, you know, in Mary Kay, they have these little uniforms. The sales directors have these suits that they wear. Everyone wears the same suit. And there's a pattern that they come out with every, they used to do a new suit every year. I think now they're going to do it every two years. And so, you know, there's a, there's a color and a style and, you know, there's three jackets and you pick which one and, and you overpay for it. And so there is advice that if you're a sales director and you're going to a funeral, wear your sales director suit. Oopsie. Someone might ask, and my Mary Kay pin is on there. And yes, that would be a great opportunity for recruiting. It's gross. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it is gross. So I'm wondering also, sometimes people will say to me, listen, I don't, I don't think you're right about something that I got involved in because my experience has been perfectly fine. And I will say, great, maybe it's been fine because you haven't said no yet. 
And maybe it's fine because you haven't said you're done yet, because that's sometimes it's like leaving a controlling partner. They might seem okay, but as soon as you say I'm out, that's when they might turn up the heat and be abusive or say, you'll never find anyone like that's when the meanness might come out. So what have you noticed with people in the multi-level marketing when they, they real they're looking at the numbers and they're looking at their life and they think they're done with this. Well, you're exactly right. My personal experience was exactly that. Everyone was fabulous to me until the day I said, I think I'm done now. And my recruiter and sales director, who was acting as if she was my best friend up until that point, mocked me and laughed at me when I told her, I've been in Mary Kay and I started a forensic accounting practice and I've been doing both at the same time. And I really feel like I haven't done justice to each other. So for right now, I'm going to set Mary Kay aside and focus on the forensic accounting practice. She laughed at me. She ridiculed me. She told me how I would never make anyone feel good about themselves with accounting. How wrong was she when I'm helping someone in their divorce, figure out where their money went and help them get it back. But she was absolutely horrible to me as I was leaving. And so I experienced that firsthand. And what we see across the board is the minute you say, this is not something I want to be a part of anymore, you are shunned. You are, everyone is supposed to go no contact with you. You didn't, you know, you tell your unit members, don't talk to someone who has quit, who has left. She's a quitter. She's a loser. You want to associate with winners like us. (sighs) It's a lot. It is a lot. And I guess someone just hearing that might think like, eh, screw them. So they said these things. But I think it's your community. These are your supposed friends. And this is being said by someone you respect, someone you see in a role of leadership, someone you think is successful and who you want to emulate. Yeah. And and being ridiculed also, was it... M- I mean, you said some of the things that you were told in terms of being ridiculed. What else? Because sometimes those are the things that stay with you. They kind of ring in your ears for a while. The comments about you or being a quitter of some sort, what your life is going to be like from here on in, or that you are abandoning people who are, you know, on your downlines and et cetera, et cetera. So what else were you told? I'm curious. You know, one of the things that was really hard for me and was part of my decision to leave was that I had recruited someone who was in an abusive marriage and she had confided in me about the abuse by her husband. um, And she was looking at Mary Kay as an opportunity to earn some money of her own, but he was not on board with it. And she said, here's the deal. He's allowing me to sign up to do it, but I can't buy a package of products of inventory. I can't spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on it. He would just never allow it. And if I tried to do it without his consent, it would mean a really big problem for me. Well, my sales director, who was also my recruiter, is responsible for having the inventory talk with the new recruits to see how much can you get them to buy. And kind of the the starting point is, can you buy $3,600 worth of stuff? And if the answer is no, they will start offering lower options. Well, I had called my sales director slash recruiter and said, hey, listen, I just recruited this woman. She's great. She's wonderful. You know, we've we've gotten to know each other over the last few weeks, but she's not going to be purchasing inventory. And I got yelled at, how dare you 
have the inventory talk. That is my role. This is my unit. This is my paycheck that you are screwing with by not letting me have this conversation with her. And I said, well, I feel a little funny disclosing this to you, but she is in a domestic abuse situation and it's just not going to be possible for her to buy inventory. Do you know that that director of mine went and had the inventory talk with her anyway and tried to guilt her into buying inventory? And to me, that was so disgusting. That was like the straw that broke the camel's back for me. They didn't care about her safety as much as kind of keeping her in line, basically. But I think there is something very heartless about these communities. And people sometimes have come to me and have said, I didn't like who I became. And I didn't recognize myself, but I felt really driven and I couldn't just sort of cut my losses and go, I wasn't ready for that. So yeah, people leave feeling bad about the conversations they've had, the having people give over their last paycheck for something, you know, it's hard. People leave with a lot of guilt. Well, and that was just it too, is I had recruited someone who did not have financial resources to purchase products and was getting in for the goal of making some money. And again, there was an inventory talk with her trying to get her to take out a credit card and things like this. And I just looked at what was going on and thought, how can I be a part of this? And when I finally stepped back and started looking critically at some of these practices was then when I started thinking critically about the setup of multi-level marketing and, oh my goodness, I'm involved in a pyramid scheme. You know, this was back when there was almost nothing that you could find on the internet that was negative about multi-level marketing companies. There was just no research to be had out there. And so that's why I said, okay, I'm going to start writing about this and making information available to people so that they understand what they're getting involved in. Do they have you sign any kind of NDA when you get involved? No. You have a contract, but it doesn't have NDA sort of language in it. Good. Okay. Because that's, I mean, that's one of the things that's really wreaked havoc in some people's lives who have wanted justice, who've wanted to tell their story. I'm glad that that doesn't happen. And if it starts to become something that you're supposed to do, don't. <laughs> Just don't. NDA, for those who don't know, non-disclosure agreement, right? Where they're asking you to keep things secret. Right. And there's been some talk we've had on the podcast about if you have to sign it and it's under duress, you know, it, is it then null and void or does it stand up in court? Let me go kind of go back and forth on that. But still, it's just better not to sign things if you don't know really where it's going to come back to hurt you in some way. And so I wonder, multi-level marketing, I mean, it it happens with products. It happens with trust. It happens in so many ways where you buy into something and you believe the promises. It pays to take a step back and look at things really objectively if you can. It's hard when you're in it. But I guess especially if it's about women's empowerment and all you've noticed over time is that you have less of everything, then how could it possibly be for empowerment? Well, I'll bring it back around to divorce again to kind of bring us full circle. When I was I was creating the divorce money guide to help people, you know, who couldn't afford a forensic accountant evaluate their finances and their divorce and see if there was money that was hidden. I was thinking about this concept of people being gaslit or being told you're paranoid, you're crazy, there's nothing wrong. And so I created an assessment for people 
15 questions about your finances in your marriage to give someone that objective lens to look through where answer these questions and I'm going to return a result to you that as an expert is going to tell you, should you be worried about potential fraud in your marriage or should you not? You know, and there's sort of a, you know, there's a a range of answers there all the way from, nope, everything looks pretty good all the way up to, oh my goodness, you should be on high alert. So I felt that was really important to to create some objective way to evaluate what people are seeing in their marriage, because it's really hard when you're in it to see the facts for what they are. It's very hard. And sometimes it's not even until you have started talking about it and hearing yourself say those things to someone else where you think, oh, actually, no, that that sounds really wrong or that doesn't make sense. That it's a very powerful thing, although a lot of people are kind of held to a certain kind of privacy or secrecy, so they don't have a chance to tell other people what's going on. Is that part of the system as well, that you're supposed to keep things secret or private? As far as multi-level marketing and Mary Kay, I think, yes, there's, there's the stuff that, you know, is very heavily guarded and only talked about behind closed doors. They will say things like only talk to your upline about certain things because the upline controls the messaging, right? Or, you know, oh, if you want to talk about those kinds of things, you'd have to get promoted to the next level. Cause then we talk about those kinds of things at our special meetings. Certainly there is a a veil of secrecy that that is adhered to. And then with relationships too, coming back to that, I mean, I think if you're told you need to keep things secret, keep things private, you always want to ask yourself why and who that's protecting. It's usually not you. I wonder also just with the the list of questions of things to help to, to help people be really investigators into their own lives and their own relationships, which is wonderful. Where can people find that, the, the list of questions? They could go to my website, fraudcoach.com. And there is a link at the very top of that page that says, take the red flag assessment. So it's 15 questions. It'll probably take you about three minutes to get through. It'll ask you things about how you and your partner handle money and and make some of the decisions together. And there's kind of a laundry list of things. Have you ever seen this in your marriage? You know, like, have you ever discovered a bank account that you knew nothing about or things like that? Right. Yeah. So I could see in, you know, if we were to do a case somehow together, my role would be to help someone not just talk it away in their head because they've been taught to, or that they're not supposed to be thinking negative things, or even if they notice the bank account, they're supposed to somehow give permission for this person to have this and to not be upset. Most controllers cannot handle anger and even sadness. So you're not supposed to have those things, especially so that they're not directed at them. I think it's good for people to know what steps they need to take if they're noticing something like this. So What kind of guidance can you give people just as we're finishing up? If they start to have questions, what are some of the first calls they need to make and to whom? If someone was having questions about the finances in their marriage, they were concerned that their spouse is siphoning off money, secretly spending a bunch of money, things like that. I always say your first step is to gather as much information as you can legally If you have access to bank accounts and credit card accounts and that access is legal, meaning your name is on the accounts, 
you can go ahead and log into online banking, start downloading statements and put those in a safe place, either paper copies away from your home or digital copies somewhere safe like Dropbox or Google Drive in an account that is uh, very strongly password protected. Because once we get down that road potentially to divorce, that information is going to be really, really important. If there are financial documents in your house, in a filing cabinet drawer, take copies of those, put them in a safe place. So gathering information is one important first step. The next important step really is talking with a divorce attorney. Even if you don't think you're going to get divorced, if you know that there's financial infidelity, that's a big problem in your marriage. And I think it's important to at least talk to divorce attorney to know what your rights are in your state, what you would do if you chose that path. And because you want to be prepared. Even if you aren't choosing divorce, what if your spouse would choose that? So I'm very much about preparation and and sort of making a plan. It's all about making a plan just in case. I like this because a lot of people are afraid to take these steps because they think that they have to be ready to follow through. And they might not be, it might not be the right time. It might be dangerous for them to do it then. But I like that you're saying, just take care of this, collect data and make a call, maybe have a meeting, but it doesn't mean you have to sign anything. Doesn't mean you have to take steps that might feel too scary, or you might still be unsure about the outcome of it. But just to, I guess, to find out from someone and someone like you too, what's happening that's wrong, what rights you have here. And so that you're more educated going into potentially making a decision. It's also good to know for people to reach out to someone like you, you, I'm sure you give them the sense that they have backup. And, you know, when people feel they have to deal with something alone, they often don't because it's just too daunting by themselves. So I'm sure just partnering with you feels empowering. I just think that having information is so important because to me, the complete unknown is more scary. At least if you know what your options and your rights are. If I chose to go the route of divorce, how might this play out? To me, having that information from a knowledgeable professional is going to help you with your decision-making process. So I know that you have a ton of information and over the decades that you've been doing this. And so if people want to be in touch with you, and thank you for that information about where they can find that document. Is Are there other ways for people to find you should they want to talk to you? You can find me on Instagram at Divorce Money Guide. You can go to the website, broadcoach.com. There's an email address there. You can email me if you want to. That will absolutely get to me. And I will try to help anyone who might have some questions or some concerns. Thank you, Tracy, so much for talking today and just for the work that you're doing. And again, you know, like I was saying at the beginning, taking your experience and turning it around and having it be a way to educate the public. And I think also to try to take some of the power away from people who take it away from other people. Okay, good to talk to you. Thanks again. very nice and important to meet people like Tracy Conan. Thank you so much, Tracy, for all that you do for helping to solve the mystery about where money has gone. The kind of creative use of language in so many of these groups really interferes with there being a very easily followed paper trail because 
paying for something suddenly becomes a donation or that you're paying for somebody else to be able to go, or it's part of a prosperity gospel, or it's just that you're taking care of what Scientology calls your freeloader debt. So many terms that are just about the group or the person in charge getting your money. And one of the things that I think is really important is that what Tracy does is she looks at the bottom line, black and white. How much money did you have before? How much do you have now? How much did you give? How much did you make? And when you take the emotion out of it, you take all the other words out of it, all the other terms out of it, like the psychic healer who will say, this is evil energy and we need to take it away from you. They're talking about your cash so that they can have it. When you really look at the numbers, then you'll see that you're being fleeced most often. You'll understand why you have nothing. You'll understand why you're suffering, why you can't protect yourself, your children. And maybe at that point, you'll stop waiting. The waiting is the thing that manipulators hope you'll do. They hope you'll stay in this suspended animation of promise where they can promise that something is just coming around the corner. And if you just stick with it long enough, you'll get there. You'll see all this sacrifice has been worth it. But if you just keep waiting in what I call the suspended animation of promise, then you'll very often find that the only thing you receive is a greater sense of frustration and loss because more time has passed, more bills have piled up, more frustration. And all you get when you go to the people in charge to find out what's happening and why it's not coming back to you yet is just being told to wait and to work harder or to put more into the system so that you can get more out. Money is an interesting thing. For so many cult leaders, for so many manipulators, it is about the money. And for other people, it's just about the power because for some money is the way that they see their power, but sometimes just knowing that they're going to tell you to give it up and you give it up, that's the power. So I suggest that you not be afraid of looking at the numbers. It's very hard when you really see your bank statement, when you really try to keep track of what you've spent and what you've received. You don't want to live a life where you're constantly given IOUs. You want to be able to get back what you have put in, or at least you want there to be a real honesty from the beginning that this is what it's going to cost you. This is how much you're going to spend. You want the numbers ahead of time, which is rarely, if ever, the case within a manipulative group, multi-level marketing, any kind of relationship where someone is living off of you, or at least they plan to. Don't be afraid of the numbers. Don't be afraid of looking at the black and white. And if you need to, call people like Tracy so that they can help you with sensitivity, not with blame, not with how could you have done this. There are professionals who will be critical of you and they can still help you. But try to go to people like Tracy who will understand how you got ensnared and how human it is of you to want to be involved in a process where you are getting promised so much, more than you could have gotten before. We all want that. I just don't want you taken advantage of. That's one of the whole reasons that I do this podcast. So thank you so much to Tracy and for the work that she does. 
and good luck out there. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.